Well, it's been a while uh, since we were in the book of Revelation, but if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 4, that is our sermon text this morning. If you're able to stand, please do, and uh, give ear to the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Revelation chapter 4, all 11 verses. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word this morning. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature uh, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Well, we're, we're getting back into this study in Revelation. It's been a while. It's been since the end of December, roughly, that we were in this book. I don't know if you've kept up reading on it on your own. But if you're familiar with Revelation, you'll know that, that Revelation chapter 4 marks uh, the second cycle, so to speak, of prophetic visions in the book. You, you might know that uh, many, many scholars divide the book, they outline the book of Revelation around seven sets or cycles of, of prophetic visions. And each of those cycles are seen to be not consecutive chronologically, but seen most of the way uh, as being parallel. And that, that adds to some of the confusion sometimes that we have in re- reading the book of Revelation is one, is that they're visions. They, they are not as some in dispensational camps and others, uh, they, they try to make these things out to be exactly what they, you know, this is a picture of what things actually are. Revelation is symbolic in nature. These visions are not meant to teach us what, like for instance in our text, they don't teach us what God looks like. Because God doesn't look like anything according to his divine nature. He is invisible. He is a spirit. Um, and so these visions, they teach us about what's, what's going to happen between Christ's first and second comings. Uh, and each one of these seven cycles of visions kind of paints that whole span of history over again, maybe with a different emphasis, a different perspective. But it's telling the same story repeatedly from a different 
angle. And so chapter 4 marks the beginning of that second cycle of visions. The first cycle we looked at uh, a few months ago, and the first cycle is in the first three chapters of the book. It's in those chapters that John talks about in chapter 1, verse 13, that he saw a vision of, quote, one like a son of man, and where was that one like a son of man? He was in he was in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And what were those lampstands? The seven churches. And then what do you have in, in chapters 2 and 3? You have Christ's epistles or letters to those seven churches. And what, if you remember, what did those seven churches represent? All the church everywhere in every time and place. In other words, they weren't just written for those seven churches who were real churches in Asia Minor in the first century. They're written for our benefit as well. And so as we went through those seven letters, uh, we were encouraged, I hope, to look at ourselves and say, in what way is our church like the church in Ephesus or, or Smyrna or Philadelphia, we hope, right? Or, or even Laodicea. We, that we're meant to look at those letters and say, does this have anything to say to us? Is this like us? That's what those first, that first cycle of visions was meant to teach us in the first three chapters of Revelation. Now, the theme in those chapters is found in the first chapter when he talks about the one like a son of man, you know, where was he? In the midst of the churches. The, the, the first three chapters are meant to tell us in some way or to emphasize in some way, in symbolic form, Christ's presence with his church. That, you know, we, we sometimes can tend to think or be tempted to think that, well, we know that we confess every time we do, we, we say the Apostles' Creed, for instance, that, that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so we, we kind of think he's removed from us. Because physically he is. Right? He is seated at the right hand of God, the incarnate Son of God, our mediator and our, our redeemer. But where is he always? What does he say at the end of the Great Commission? Lo, I am with you, what? Always, even to the end of the age, well, those visions, that vision of Christ in the midst of his lampstand, which, which are the churches, and even the letters show us, are meant to show us, he's right there with us, he knows everything about us. And at times in those letters he had uh, admonitions for his churches, at times in those epistles he had praises uh, for these churches, for the ones who were faithful in doing well, well, last last Sunday we finally finished up our series going through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, going through it line by line. And uh, I don't know if you thought about this, but in a way I think it's very fitting that we that we start this particular section of Revelation right after going through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and, and why is that? Well, what is the Lord's Prayer about? If I could use the book of Hebrews as a as a jumping off point, prayer is about coming boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help and grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. So prayer is going boldly to the throne of grace. Uh, and what what is the theme in Revelation chapter 4? Not just Revelation in general, although this is true too. What's the great theme of chapter 4 in Revelation? The great theme of this entire chapter is the throne of God. So we're going from talking about going to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help to now looking at the throne of grace in Revelation chapter 4. We're talking about and looking at, we're being told about in this chapter, repeatedly the throne of God in heaven. Now, in case you aren't sure why I say that, if you look at the chapter in, in your Bible there, how many times do you see the word throne or thrones in these 11 verses? 13 times! 
in 11 verses. I think John and the Lord Jesus Christ more so is trying to tell us something. It's clearly the emphasis, clearly the emphasis of the entire chapter. Joel Beakey uh, goes even further. He writes this in his commentary. He says, God's throne is the primary picture in Revelation, the entire book. God's throne is the primary picture in Revelation. The word throne occurs in the New Testament 62 times, and 47 of these are in Revelation. The book is dominated by the, by the idea that there is a throne in heaven at the center of all things, and that there is a glorious one who sits upon that throne. That's, that's the theme of Revelation. It, it, it pulls back the curtain, so to speak. That's what re- Revelation means. It's revealing. It, apocalypse, the apocalypse of John is the revelation of, that, that Jesus gave to us. He's sort of pulling back the, back the curtain, so to speak, in, in vision form, to show us how things really are, not how things seem to us on this earth. And so when, when, to say that the throne of God is the center, is the main theme of Revelation, means that the main theme of Revelation in some way is that God rules. And that Christ himself rules at the right hand of God for the sake of his church. He is the head of all things for the sake of his church, Paul says in Ephesians 1.22. That's a message that the church still needs to hear today. That Christ is ruling even now over all things. That's the theme of the book of Acts. That's, that's the overall theme of the book of Acts, is that Christ is ruling and building his church from the right hand of God even now. And I think that is a message that we certainly ourselves need to hear as well, that, that Christ, God rules, Christ rules at his right hand now over all things for our sakes, for our good. Now, when we went to the Lord's Prayer, we saw that the, and we don't use words like this very often, but our confession, our catechism calls the opening of the Lord's Prayer the preface, or the or the address, and what is the preface of the Lord's Prayer? It's our Father who art in heaven. It's how we address our our, our God and our Father, Matthew six nine. And when we looked at that, we we said we we looked at we learned at that time was that 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 address, calling God our Father, uh, was meant to fill us with confidence in God's ability and willingness to hear and answer. In other words, it's it's for our benefit. It's to remind it's for us to remind ourselves if we need that, of just who it is that we're addressing in prayer, what he is willing and able to do for our benefit. Well, in a lot of ways, Revelation chapter 4 has the same purpose. It has the same purpose. Here in this chapter, we're kind of given a, in symbolic form, kind of a peek into the throne room of heaven, a peek behind uh, the curtain, and that peek, peek behind the curtain at the throne of God is supposed to fill us First, that we don't shortcut the thing, it's, it's meant to fill you and I with awe. Reverence for God. We're, that's the first thing that should happen, is we should read this chapter, and if we have any sense, and granted, we're not seeing it. John's sort of painting the picture to, for us in words. John was in awe, and we are to be in awe as well. And that awe should lead us to worship our God who is holy, 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 with reverence and awe. It's also intended to fill us not just with awe and wonder, but to fill us with confidence and peace. Especially as some of these great themes of the future of church history get unfolded for us before our eyes in the form of those visions in the chapters that follow. You know, John, you know, Jesus could have given the book of Revelation and skipped chapter four and five and gone right into the visions of the future and the sufferings, the afflictions, the trials that God's people have to endure for the name of Christ. 
And it would have made sense, but it would have been, it would have shortchanged us. He puts chapters four and five here to get us ready, to fill us with confidence that the Lord is in charge, that his throne rules over all things, even these things he's about to show us in the chapters that follow. Even the things that you're going through in your lives right now, these chapters are to bolster your confidence in your God and Heavenly Father, to fill us with awe, to fill us with confidence and peace. Many of those visions that we're going to see uh, in the chapters after this, uh, they paint a picture of, of the church on this earth throughout the ages, suffering persecution and affliction for the name of Christ. And if that's the case, what do we as a church need more in light of all that than to have a little glimpse, just a little glimpse of the glory of God's throne in heaven? That's what chapter 4 is about. Next chapter, chapter 5, uh, talks about the throne, but it talks repeatedly about how worthy the Lamb is to receive glory and honor and power and all these things. That's what these two chapters are meant to do, uh, to bolster us in our faith and confidence as we go on in the rest of the book. Well, let's look at the first thing. The first thing we see in our passage this morning uh, is John's description of two things, a door and a throne. And we're going to spend most of our time on the throne. He wants us to behold the throne in heaven as he saw himself. Verse 1, he writes this, After this, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So John is, is he, he sees this vision, he sees a door up in heaven, and he sees that, hears that voice, the same voice he heard in chapter 1 saying, Come up here, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you what's going to take place after this. So he mentions a door, uh, and it was a door that was opened in heaven. Now, if you remember, it's been a while since we looked at the book, but this is now in the last two chapters, chapters 2 and 3 now, the third time Jesus has mentioned a door. The first time he mentions a door was in Revelation 3, verse 8, when the Lord Jesus told the faithful church in Philadelphia that uh, and all churches like her, rather, that he had set before them what? An open door which no one is able to shut. He's the one that's able to open doors and no one can shut them. He's the one that can close doors and no one can open them. He tells this little struggling, weak, faithful church, I've set before you an open door which no one can shut. And we said when we looked through that, at that passage at the time that that was a door of opportunity for the gospel which we just prayed for this morning in our prayer of thanksgiving and supplication. Despite their limited size and strength, their relative weakness in the world's eyes, we can identify with that, I think, a little bit, uh, the Lord Jesus had sovereignly set before them an open door, an opportunity to be used by him to testify to the gospel for the glory of the sake of Christ. What did he tell Paul in 2 Corinthians twelve nine That his strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. God doesn't delight to use strong people. God delights to use weak people to magnify his own strength, that he gets all the glory for it. Think about what an encouragement that open door is to every church and every time and place to remain faithful. You ever need encouragement as a church, as a believer, to remain faithful and and testifying to the Lord in both your actions and your words? That letter to the church in Philadelphia should be it. Now, in the, the church to the, the letter to the next church, Laodicea, even saying the name, if you're familiar with the letter, uh, your first instinct is to probably think, not such a great church, not the one you'd want to uh, be a part of. At the end of Revelation 3, he tells them, not of a an open door, but of a what? 
It doesn't use the word in so many words, but a closed door. All churches like the church in Laodicea. He tells them there's not an open door, there's a closed door. And the worst part about that closed door in verse 20 of chapter 3, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Where's Jesus in relation to this lukewarm church in Laodicea? He's on the outside. He's not sitting before them a door. He's saying, you're inside and I'm out here. That's not the kind of church that you want to be or be a part of. That's an awful picture of an unfaithful church where Christ is no longer, in a sense, among them. Really, it's not a church at all. He was going to take away their lampstand if they didn't repent. That's a warning for every church and every time and place until Christ returns. A warning against apostasy and unfaithfulness. Well, now in our text, John sees another door, a door standing before him in heaven, and he tells us, what does he say? Behold. I know we read that kind of word. The Bible just always says that, and we kind of go right past it. But he's he's talking or writing to us. He's saying, look. Now he knows, he doesn't, he doesn't draw us a picture. There's no pictures. There shouldn't be any pictures in your Bible. Uh, God didn't put them there, right? He put words there. But John is saying, I'm, I'm painting a picture for you with words. And he's saying, behold, behold a door. You know, I don't know if you've, you've had kids or grandkids. Uh, now that we have smartphones with a little screen, every once in a while I'll try to show my kids a video or something. Or if they hear me, they hear a video going on my phone, what do they do? All of a sudden, boom, they're all around me and, and there's three of them now, and so there's not that much room to see a little screen. So what do they? They kind of jockey for position. They kind of shove and push, and I want to see. And Luke has to sit on my lap and gets in everybody's way, and they kind of fight to see. Well, that's kind of the, in a way, what we should be like when we're reading this text, not being rude to each other and elbowing each other. But well, I want to see what is what is John going to show us? What did Jesus give to John to show us? We should have kind of a sense of anticipation, a sense of longing to see this picture that John by the Lord Jesus Christ is painting for us. And what happens next is John hears the same voice he heard back in chapter 1, verse 10. That voice was loud and was like a trumpet. Now, I know some of you were like me. You were in the, spent some time in the military. A trumpet uh, gets your attention. A trumpet uh, is something that's meant to get your attention. It's meant to get you ready for the orders of the day. You know, very often a trumpet in some cases is what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's what gets you, they call reveille, they call taps, they call uh, all kinds of things by the means of a trumpet. A trumpet is meant to get your attention. And the voice he heard, doesn't mean Jesus actually sounds like a trumpet, but he heard a voice that was like a trumpet. That's a common Old Testament uh, imagery for the voice of God. And it's meant to get us prepared for battle in this particular case. He says, that the voice of Christ told him to come up where he was and he was going to show him what, quote, what must take place after this. And what does John see first? After he sees the door, after he goes up to see what Christ is going to show him, look at verses 2 through 6. This is part of this vision. He says, at once I was in the Spirit. In other words, he's the Holy Spirit is showing him this, this thing. Uh, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. There's that word behold. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, 
And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, once again, remember that these things, these, these visions are full of imagery and symbolism. And we, we want to be careful not to try to, you know, mine, every, you know, some kind of little detail or, or nugget out of every single thing, thing we see in the vision. It's been said that Revelation is a picture book without pictures, of word pictures. And so in a lot of ways, it's meant to, it's meant to give us an impression. It's meant to impress something upon us. And we shouldn't press the details of these visions too, too much. So I'm not going to go into every little detail of the vision. I'm going to try to stick with the big picture of the big picture here in the text and go through it. We know that uh, from a previous chapter in chapter 1 that the seven spirits of God does not mean that uh, Revelation has a funny view of the Trinity. What it means is how many churches were there in the letter? Seven. And so it's it's the number seven there is meant to show the Holy Spirit working in all of the churches and that kind of a thing. That's why it says that. But but what do you see a vision of here? You don't really see, in a sense, yet, a vision of the future things. You see the vision of a throne. Now, you could say that the worship that takes place at the end, uh, that, that some of that may be future in an ultimate sense, but I think uh, the main thing here is the throne and not really the things to happen yet uh, in, in the future. And what you see is a throne, and he describes the one who is seated on the throne and that's really the most important part of the vision. It's not the not the furniture, it's the king. It's the one who's sitting on that throne. Now, again, this is not the description that, that John gives us. It's not supposed to be taken by us as a picture of what God looks like. That is not what this is meant to teach. It's meant to give us an impression about something about God. It's to teach us about God. Why? God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like we do. He does not have a physical body. He cannot be seen by us as he is according to his divine nature. It's probably without, uh, not without reason that this vision doesn't really describe him, does it? It talks about him having the appearance of these, these precious stones, but it doesn't say, here's what he looks like. Here's how big he looks. Here's, you know, it doesn't say any of that. And why, why do you think that is? Well, we would probably, probably be tempted to break the second commandment and try to make a, a, a reproduction of this image of God, which we are forbidden to do. We are not to make any carved image or any other kind of image of God and worship and serve it. And that's what we would be tempted to do. The scripture forbids such things. But his appearance is that of like precious stones. And it says around his throne was a rainbow or a halo that had the appearance of an emerald. I mean, this would be a pretty impressive looking thing. We, you know, the Wizard of Oz and the Emerald City, well, this is an emerald rainbow around the throne. If you saw this throne, you would have been awestruck to take a look at it. And what, is, what does he say about what's around the throne? He says in verse 4 that around the throne of God were, quote, 24 thrones. So you've got one throne surrounded by thrones. Not chairs, thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns, golden crowns around or on their heads. Now, many many scholars believe that these the number twenty four indicates what? How many tribes in Israel were there? There were the twelve tribes. How many apostles or disciples were there originally? Twelve. And so they take the twenty four to be kind of the inclusion of the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. In other words, the church in the Old Testament as well as the church in the New Testament. And I think that that. 
that sounds correct to me as well. I think it's, it's, it's kind of showing the heads of the tribes, so to speak, around the throne. And they all had their own thrones. They ruled with Christ, and they had white garments. What does that represent? They were washed in the blood of the Lamb. They were forgiven and made right with God on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. And they had crowns on their heads, and they, they ruled and reigned with Christ. And that's what we are promised all through this book and elsewhere in, in Scripture. John in verse 5 says, From the throne came what? Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now, whenever you read Revelation, remember that a lot of the imagery that you're going to read about, where, where does it first where is it first found? In the Old Testament, this chapter, as short as it is, borrows uh, imagery from the Old Testament repeatedly. Maybe as you, as I was reading it, you were like, that sounds familiar. That sounds like Isaiah 6. That sounds like Exodus 19. And that, that imagery of the lightning and, and thunder and all that, that's from Revelation, that's from Exodus rather, chapter 19, which is the chapter right before, you know, every first Sunday, we read Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Well, this is the, the prelude, the build-up to give it to God giving his Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 20, it says this, On the morning of the third day, in other words, God told them, in three days I'm going to do something, you know, get ready. It says, On the morning of the third day there were what? Thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Have you ever heard a noise that made you shake? Maybe something startled you, but something loud enough you kind of jolted you and you kind of, it got you kind of scared like something was going to happen. Maybe an earthquake, a loud earth, you know, loud rumbling. Uh, all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Can you imagine trying to get them to move? They're trembling and Moses is like, all right, come on out and let's meet God. I, I would have been in the tent going, no, 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 we're good. You know, we'll stay, we'll stay back here. You go talk to God. And he says, uh, you know, that Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand, there's a phrase, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So it's like Isaiah's vision. There's a lot of shaking going on. The people shook. And creation shook. The mountain was shaking. You can imagine they were probably not eager to get too close to the foot of that hill. It says, and as the sound of the trumpet, there's a trumpet just like our vision, right? The, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. There's an answer. Probably shook even more. The, then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai the, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. You imagine having that job? Everybody's shaking, and then Moses has to climb the mountain that was just shaking. Covered in smoke, lightning, and thunder, and God thundering from the top of the mountain. And then what does he give us? The Ten Commandments. How seriously are we to take God's commandments? How seriously were the people of Israel to take what they were about to hear? And who said those commandments we saw before? God said all these words, or spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. I mean, it wasn't through Moses, it was God himself talking. Now, Hebrews 12.21 says that Moses himself trembled with fear at this scene. Moses wasn't Superman. The people trembled, Moses says he did too. You get the feeling that John might have trembled during this vision a bit also in Revelation chapter 4. Now, the lesson then is the same lesson as it is today, and the same as it was for John. What's the lesson? God is holy. 
you can learn a lot of things from that, that, that scene in this vision in Revelation 4. But among other things, God is holy should be number one on the list. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29 says this, and it's referencing that same scene at the foot of the mountain. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's the word shaken again. And thus, let us do what? Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a what? A consuming fire. Not was. You know, in the Old Testament, God was a consuming... No. Our God is the same God they worshipped. And our God is still a consuming fire, and we are to worship Him with reverence and awe. That's acceptable worship to God, with reverence and awe through Christ. Well, that brings us to the second thing that we see in John's vision of the throne of God, and that's worship. Worship around the throne of God. Look at verses 8 through 11. 8 through 11, John writes this, And the four living creatures, those odd-looking creatures with eyes all around and all that, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They're saying this the whole time. It doesn't stop. They just keep saying it, just like in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. And it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then what happens? The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We might not think of this as kind of the, the climax of the whole thing, but worship. And look who's doing the worshiping. These, cre- these angelic beings and these elders, 24 elders, are worshiping God at his throne. Now, those angelic beings, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. And what, are the, what does that do? That echoes Isaiah chapter 6, uh, word for word, just about. And just like Isaiah needed that glimpse of the throne of God and the holiness of God, so John did as well, and so we do in our own days too. Now, this, this was written for our sakes. John could have seen this vision if it was just for him and never written it down. God had him write it down. It commanded him to write it down. Why? Because we need to hear it. We need to know and be reminded of the holiness of God, that God is infinitely holy. The church in every age needs to be reminded of God's infinite holiness and power. We worship and serve a God who is, to quote these uh, the angelic beings, who is the Lord. What does that mean? When they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's the Lord. He's in charge. He's the one on the throne. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. We worship and serve a God who is also the Almighty. What does that mean? He is infinite in power and majesty, can do all things, created all things with just a word. We worship a God who is also eternal and unchanging. He, he is the one, what does it say, who was and is and is to come, the one who lives forever and ever. God does not change. God lives forever. How different would, would our lives be if we were to keep these things in mind, if we were to be reminded of or remind ourselves of from God's word, of the holiness, the majesty, the power of God? How different would our worship be if we kept those things in mind? How much differently would we view the sufferings and persecutions that the church must endure in every age, in this present evil age, 
if we kept those things in mind. Because that's why this vision was given. It's one of the many reasons that God gave us these visions in Revelation chapter 4. To change our lives, to change our worship, to prepare us and give us strength for the fight. Those angelic beings, you think about it, and I, I, I can't begin to paint the picture John sort of does here in the text. You know, if you saw them, if you saw them, or even saw you know, this vision of them, or what they, 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 I don't think they actually exist like this, but if you saw them like this, what would you do? You'd probably be tempted to worship them. You'd be afraid of them, you'd be impressed by them, you'd be in awe, you'd probably be dumbstruck. And yet, what do they do? They might make us tremble with fear, but they worship the Lord. They praised Him. What, what does it say there? Day and night, verse 8. And the whole time they cried out back and forth that God is holy, holy, holy. They worshiped God. They gave, quote, what does it say there in verse 9? They gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. That's how great our God, that your God is. That being such as that, that to us might as well be little gods, worship him and give him glory and thanks and honor. At all times. What about those 24 elders? And you know that that's the word presbyteros. They're Presbyterians. 24 Presbyterians around the throne of God. Uh, they fell down before the one who was seated on the throne. And what did they do? They cast their crowns before what? The throne. God, by His grace, had given them, had crowned them for their work and, and, and for their work in His name. And what did they do? They cast them before God because they belonged to Him. All glory goes to Him. And they worshiped. And they said that God is worthy to what? To receive glory and honor and power. And what do they praise him for? His acts of creation. He created all things that it's only by him that they existed and were created. They're talking about God's power in creation. God rules over all things because God created all things and God, God sustains all things. There's nothing he can't do. He dwarfs every other earthly power. They praise God for his power and majesty. In his book, some of you remember Dennis Johnson, his, in his book on Revelation, it's called the, called Triumph of the Lamb. Uh, he notes that, he says, quote, the throne scene that spans Revelation 4 and 5 contains five expressions of praise. If you look at your Bibles very often, they're indented in the page. So you can see them. You can just kind of count them as you look down the page. It contains five uh, expressions of praise. Now, he also points out that the source of these expressions of praise and worship it's like a concentric circle that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In other words, you start with these four creatures, these strange, awesome-looking creatures, the 24 elders, and then uh, in chapter 5, in verse 13, the last one, it says uh, that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea now gave praise and glory to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, you have this the circle of worship starting right at the throne with these four creatures going to the 24 elders, and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where all of creation is worshiping God. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, that's everywhere. That's how great our God is that one day, what does Philippians say? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of creation will one day glorify and worship God and give him praise and glory to the one who sits on the throne. That, that's, what, that's what these two chapters are meant to do, to remind us of who it is that we worship, who it is that is, that is our God and our, and our Father and our Redeemer. Uh, and that, that is what will get us ready for and be, make us willing and able to endure all things for the sake 
of Christ. That's the God we worship. That is the God of your salvation if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today. This vision is a vision of the God of your salvation. That vision of the throne of God should fill us with awe. It should lead us to worship God in the beauty of his holiness, as the psalmist says in Psalm 96.9. And that kind of worship is life-changing. It's meant, it's meant to be life-changing. It's not meant to be entertaining. It's not meant to be passing the time. It's meant to be enjoyable in a sense, but sometimes we don't enjoy the right things. We're, we're to enjoy God. What's our first question in the catechism? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what these creatures, these elders in all of creation will one day do. It should change our lives. This, this, under, this grasp, this little glimpse of the throne of God should fill you with confidence and peace in the face of trials, adversity, affliction, and even persecution and death. This vision of God's throne reminds us of the basis of the promise of Romans 8.28. That, that's one of those verses that if you don't know it, uh, if you do know it, I'm sure it fills you with, with great comfort. You hang on to it and call it to mind many times. But it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because he rules. Because God is sovereign. He's able to make all these things the bad things, the worst things. He is able and does make all of those things work together for your good. You don't always see how he does it, but you know that he does, and one day you will see it for what it is. And Matthew 10.30 tells us that even the hairs of your head are numbered. I, I, I like the way that the Heidelberg Catechism interprets it as not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your Father in heaven. That's how greatly he makes all things work together for your good because he rules over all things. And many of these visions that follow in the chapters after this, uh, they paint a picture as we're going to see, kind of a frightening picture, kind of a scary picture in some, in some ways of the things that the church is going to suffer, the afflictions, the persecutions that we face for the name of Christ, that believers even in our day in many places face persecution and even martyrdom for the name of Christ And so what do we need to face all those things? I think this chapter gives us a big hint. We need, in light of all those things, a little glimpse of the glory of the throne of God, our God who rules over all things and makes them all work together for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in the book of Revelation, which we often find so difficult to understand and which we often try to make, say, more than what it's meant to say, and we try to read things into every little detail rather than just seeing the big picture that you paint there for us. We thank you that there is a throne, and you are the one who sits on it, uh, and you are holy, 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 and you reign over all things, and you are worthy of all praise and glory and honor and power and dominion. Lord, we thank you that you rule over all things, and so you make all things work together for our good. Even uh, persecution and death and famine and all these terrible things we think of and read in Romans 8, that you, you make sure that not a hair falls from our head apart from your will, and that you will make all these things abound to our good, for the good of your church, for the spread of the gospel of Christ, and for the glory of his name. Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us. Lord, we are weak as we've already prayed. We believe, help our unbelief, strengthen Strengthen our faith. Give us grace to have a grasp, uh, just a, a just a little bit more of a grasp and understanding of of the of your throne and how you reign over all things for our good. Give us, fill us with faith and confidence. Fill us with reverence and awe for you. 
change our lives. Help us to, to always remember your throne uh, and to see uh, that you are the one who is worthy of all praise. And thank you for what you're going to do. We pray that you would use us for the glory of your name. Make us a, a worshiping people, a, prayer, a prayerful people, and a witnessing people. And glorify your name through us and uh, convert the lost. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.